Our scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. They're right there at the door. You're doing great. All right. Okay. Hear these words from John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light to all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but born of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's only Son, full of grace and of truth. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This is the season, this is the day of epiphany. It's a season of light and we celebrate the light that comes into the world. And it made me think this week a little bit about light. You know, light is one of those phenomena that's really known most by its effects. Some things you really can't know by staring directly at them. You can't glare into a 200 watt bulb and really no light. That'll just make you blind. No, you really can't see light. I mean, what you see are the effects. What light lights up. The little um, corner of the night and the candle flickers, and there for a moment you can see it in the flicker, the sheen of the mahogany, the porcelain coffee cup, the face that leans out of the shadows. We know light by what it lights up. Some years ago, I went with my father. He went to preach out in Curituck County, which is out in the seacoast of North Carolina. It was Saturday night, and we were staying in a cottage, and my father was studying, and our new friend and host said, would you like to walk with me across the dunes? And I said, yes. And so we start walking outside, and then all of a sudden, here it came. There was this, this burst of light. It didn't last very long. And I, I said, what was that? He said, oh, we're, we're about three-quarters of a mile from the Chiritoc County Lighthouse. And he says, this is what I've learned living here. Every 18 seconds... It shoots three seconds of light in this direction. And about the time he finished saying that, here it came again. And for just a moment, I could actually see the details of the sand dunes upon which I was standing. Just three seconds of light. 
And then I couldn't help but think about this scripture. We heard it from John. The light um, blazed where? Um, into the darkness. And the darkness hasn't overcome it. And I'm not surprised that the word light shows up in the Gospel of John. Light and life, those are two words that, I mean, those are metaphors that John is going to work with from cover to cover in his book. Life, the a preposterous, abundant, my cup runneth over life that's ushered how, in by the light of the world. Could I say just a word about the Gospel of John? Do you notice this is the beginning of the gospel? We don't get any birth stories in John. He doesn't tell us anything about the when and the where of Jesus' birth. Truth of the matter, John isn't really that interested in the earthy historical details of Jesus. He's going to leave, leave that up to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who wrote decades before him. John is more of a poet than he is a historian. Um, what he wants to talk about is helping us to see the Jesus that's in the present tense, that steps out of the frame of history. The Jesus he wants us to know is the Jesus he has come to know in his own heart, and he thinks and believes we can know him too if we open our hearts. Jesus, the Word made flesh, not just back then, but right here and now, the one who sets the feet to dancing and stirs tigers in the blood. You know, it was on Christmas Eve, a lot of you were here, and we celebrated the I am, present tense of Jesus, I am the light. Remember how we began the service? Oh, this whole room was flooded with light and life and energy and the brass and the choir. And we all joined in one voice, so come all ye faithful. And we moved through that service, reading by reading. And the last reading came from this first chapter of John. And we heard that we are people who have been walking up to our neck in darkness. And then remember, the sanctuary got very dark. The lights were dim. Have you noticed when the sanctuary gets dark, people get just, well, they, you can hear people cough and squirm a little bit, and Methodists are always fumbling if they can't get their hands on their bulletin. They're a little nervous. And, but then, then it was okay because we saw one candle come from the candle, and it was passed candle to candle, person to person. You could almost hear it being said, the light of Christ for you, for you, for you. John would have been pleased. I mean, John would have been pleased. Listen again to what he said. The one who has come into existence was life. And this life was a life to live by. He said the light life. Um, it, it, it blazed into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The life light was the real deal. Now we're going to celebrate that light life this morning. But I want to just pause for just a moment and say a nice word about darkness, okay? Light and dark. Look, um, if you read Genesis 1, dark is part and parcel of creation. Remember what it said there? It was evening, night, then the first day. Evening, night, then the second day. Anybody's, have you given thanks lately for the night? I have, the older I get. The more I give thanks for the night, yeah. I can lay it all down. I can lie there asleep, slip into unconscious and unthinking, where no cleverness or self-will or worry can separate me from the simple mystery of being. If you're too young to thank God for the night, you will. <laughs> yeah. We're bad as religious people. We like to polarize, say what's good and what's bad. You know, we like to say... Um, 
church world, spirit, flesh, sacred, secular, light, dark. But look, biblical faith at its very best says all this is part and parcel. It's a single tapestry, and we call all of it good. Barbara Brown Taylor in that book, Learning How to Walk in the Dark, she said there have been days when I have been plunged knee-deep into darkness, and it was so dark it made my knees water. But she said, here's what I found. Listen to what she said. She said, I have learned things in the dark I would not have learned in the light, things that have saved me again and again. Taylor's words notwithstanding, There is another kind of darkness, though, that really is not so much to be learned from. It is to be feared. It is that darkness that is anti-creation, anti-God, that um, bedevils the human spirit. Now, when John talks about darkness, he's talking about primarily the darkness rooted in our human willfulness. The other part of the Genesis story is that we have a chance made in the image of God to exercise our self-will, and we can choose our own way, and sometimes we lose our own way. This human inclination we have, we use the theological word sin, we are predisposed to to choose something less than life and less than God, and what does that do? That just lets loose a lot of darkness into the world. It's just part of it. John, who wrote the gospel, don't think He was sitting there in some bright moment of elevation where all was well. He wrote this about 70 years after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and it still was not really a bright world. He wrote it during a season. There was great enmity and conflict between synagogue leaders and the early church. Rome was in chaos. Wars and rumors of wars. Millions of people were being pushed about the Mediterranean world like homeless refugees. And here we are, 21 centuries later. And look at us, man. The wolf and the lamb still haven't learned how to live together, to live in peace. But you know, this morning, the part of darkness that's most foreboding for me is maybe not the darkness that makes the headlines. It's the more subtle form. We don't even call it darkness anymore. I was looking one of these trailers for the new uh, season of The Bachelor, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. It's your favorite program. It's okay. And, you know, it showed several flashes of upcoming scenes and these good-looking young people. And then it had these words splashed across coming in different angles. It said, envy, um, rivalry, jealousy, pride, anger. That was the come on. They were serving up a souffle of human foolishness to entice me to watch it. I mean, are we really that bored, huh? (laughs) I I fear, I I think about the future day, the archaeologists are going to come back and they're going to be in their pith helmets and beards and dig us up. And they're going to look at the television and the videos we watched and the dark humor we laughed at, and they're going to shake their head how obsessed we were with the madness that can destroy us. But listen to me, droning on and on a little bit about the present darkness. 
You know, after a while, you hear a preacher drone long enough, and it doesn't sound like a prophetic word anymore. It sounds a little bit like a clerical whine, you know. Speaking of whine, I was a boy, and I was having a nice little pity party, whining a little too much, and this is what my mother said to me. She said, son, there is no way to modulate the human voice in which you can make a whine sound acceptable. Forgive me if my complaining about the state of things has ever become a wine. <laughs> Our gospel writer, he's a realist, but he's not a whiner. I mean, John acknowledges that to one degree or another, we, we've always walked in a degree of darkness. Okay? But he doesn't want to fall in love with the night that covers us, and nor does he want to wallow in it, nor does he want to whine about it. What he wants to do is celebrate that a light bearer, a life giver has come into our midst. It's, it's, it's as if John is saying that um, even in the dark, that um, because of him, because of the one who came, somehow now we can see, we can see the path that leads us to the door beyond the door, back into life for us and for others. Yeah, somehow he shows us the path that leads us to maybe the God we never saw before. Not the God that's an absentee landlord, but as a generous, active participant. Maybe he puts that light on the path that takes us to the cells we had not seen before. Whereas we've been prodigals trying to stifle the beyond within us, he makes us yearn to be apostles of values that last, love and mercy and forgiveness. He says, look what has come into existence. Life, and that life was life to live by. So two way, I, I can think of at least two takeaways from these, this teaching here in John. One is you move into the new year and you find yourself sometimes up to the neck in what feels like darkness. Uh, live with hope. Live with hope. I was a teenage boy and a group of us on a Friday night got a little farther from home than probably our parents knew. And we were over at the Evergreen Cemetery. We had walked a couple of miles. That's an old, scary kind of cemetery in Jacksonville, Florida. And, you know, Florida, Jacksonville particularly, had these live oak trees with those long spindly limbs and Spanish moss hanging. It, it had been a great scene for a horror movie. Well, we got there and we started trying to scare each other. And then one of my friends said, Rob, he said, I dare you. I dare you to walk from this end of the cemetery to the end and come back without a flashlight. There, there was not a street light, there was not a lamp. I made the journey. But the truth of the matter is, I hummed and I sang silly little tunes most of the way. And guess what I have found out recently? When I did that, I was making a theological statement, really. Now listen to me. I've been backed up by Frederick Buechner. You know what he says? He said, faith is a whistling in the dark because in such, much the same manner, it gives us the courage to hold the shadows at bay. Whistling in the dark doesn't mean that we pretend that the darkness doesn't scare the daylights out of us. No, it is really... Instead, it's something of a demonstration. 
that not even the darkness can quite overwhelm our trust in the ultimate triumph of living life. Whistling in the dark. I like that. <laughs> Whistling in the dark. You hear what we're talking about. We're not talking about some little hope. We're talking about the big hope. We're not talking about the hope of our own creation. Why in the world did we light candles here on Christmas Eve? Look, we, we didn't light candles just to celebrate um, the glow of human goodwill and accomplishment. No, we lit candles here on Christmas Eve because we believe that something beyond and outside of us and the darkness has entered in. And for over 2,000 years, thank God, it has not been overcome. Yeah, that's why we lit candles. Hold on to that hope. Here's the other part of the message. And remember, John now is, is an evangelist in the best sense of the word. This is good news, and he can't help but keep it to himself. And listen to what he says. Um, the life light was life. And this was life, he said, to think about, to understand, to have good feelings about. No, he said, this is life to live by. You see what he's doing? He's asking us to be engaged in this to the point we become light bearers, life givers. And now maybe right now, here at the first year, that seems a little bit too much for you. I mean, you've just been looking at your long list of New Year's resolutions, and here I'm added a really big one. But listen, when John talks about us being light bearers, I don't think he's calling any one of us to be the light. No, just a reflection of it. And that's the difference. I think sometimes we worry too much about what we can live up to and how effective we can be. What if the true sign of our witness is not how much we accomplish, but our lightness, our reflection of the one who's chosen us and who sends us? You're going to be coming to communion here. We're all going to be invited to the table. And I always feel when we make this move, it's certainly a move to come to a place of grace, but it also can be a time of commitment. I wonder if individually or as people central, we can make this simple but profound commitment that in real ways, in terms of our praying, our living, our being, that we do everything we can to stay as close to the light, the light. Think about what would happen. Think about all the brightness that we might experience around here. And we wouldn't be a group of people just trying to complete some tasks or to play some roles. We would be a people who are committed to staying in white, hot relationship with the one who can make epiphanies out of all of our days. Well, as you and I go where that way leads, know there's going to be some light on the path. Oh, it may just be a, a, a brief flicker, kind of like the three seconds of light that I saw there on Cheritook Sound. It may not be a great light. It may be a small light, like the one that ends up at the end of the Gospel of John. Here John begins his prologue with his proclamation of the light that has come into the world. And there at the end of the Gospel, you know what we have? Night fishing. 
The, gospel, the, the disciples are out in the boat. It's dark and it's night. Their nets are empty. They haven't had any success. But there it is. It's on the beach and they can see it. It's the glow of a charcoal fire. That's it. It's the glow of a charcoal fire. They don't recognize him at first. They're not even sure they see him. But it was Jesus who was on the beach, the resurrected Jesus, who set the fire. It wasn't a great light. Just the embers of a charcoal fire. So one night out on Wilderness Trail um, with the group, we were in the highlands of um, Virginia, Grayson Highlands. And uh, if you've been there, it's called the Montana of the East because the number of Highland Balds. And we were over 5,000 feet on one of these balds. We had had a fire, but the wood was wet and the group was tired and it had gone out and people had skittered into their tents. And I climbed up on a rock and I looked north and I could see it. I knew what I was seeing. It was another one of the balds, and there was a campsite there. It was called the Scales, and I could see it. It was about two miles away as the crow flies, but I could see it was a steady and sturdy fire. I could tell from even at that distance. I knew the source of that fire. I knew who was camping there. It was one of our groups that was a day ahead of us, you see. I've always held on to that picture. You know why? Because it signaled something to me. Signals of hope. That somewhere and somehow there is someone always out in front of us making a fire out in the dark and the cold. I, I don't think that's just a pie in the sky promise. I think that's the kind of promise that can set me to work with spiritual hammer and chisel, chisel, working on something that will be there even in the darkest nights. Someone out there in front of us making a fire somewhere. Hey, if you start moving now into the new year as light bearer, as life giver, um, search. Search even in the dark. For the light, the love, the life, because they are there also. The light blazed where? In the darkness. <laughs>